You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features an in-depth discussion about the nature of intelligence, comprehension, and communication. Let's have a listen. Can intelligence be quantified and how does that all work? You know, here's the thing. The, um, you know, people have these intelligence tests, IQ tests, and they, you know, they are seeing Basically, the main thing you learn from an IQ test is how well you do on IQ tests. And it's just like if you have, um, if you're, you know, running in a race or you're, you know, trying to run 100 meters in a certain period of time, the main thing you learn by how fast you run 100 meters is how fast you run 100 meters. How much you can generalize, you know, maybe you can say if you can run 100 meters quickly, then that must mean you're fit or that must mean you have long legs or that must mean you're who knows what. Um, and similarly, uh, from, you know, from any particular thing that you test, there's a certain amount of generalization you can do. You can say, well, if you can do that IQ test, then you can do something that is very, very similar to an IQ test, and so on. And so there's, there's always the question of, you know, if you want to figure out, uh, you know, who will be able to, you know, I, I, for a living, I run a company, and we have a lot of very talented people, and I'm always trying to figure out you know, we have some particular project, we have some particular problem, who's going to be able to solve this problem the best? And, you know, so usually the, a good guide to that is, well, if somebody's solved a similar problem before and they've done a good job, then they'll be able to solve this new problem as well. Um, and, you know, if you had sort of the, the ratings for who'd solved every problem in the best possible way, then maybe you could use that as a more sort of scientific way to guess who'd solve a particular problem in a particular way. And it's, it's a... Um, uh, it's something where I don't think, um, you know, is there people, okay, so back in the 1930s, particularly, there was this whole question of, is there a notion of a general intelligence? So in other words, people were, it was, it was used for, for example, recruiting for the military and other, other kinds of places where one's just dealing with a large number of people. And it's like, okay, can you sort of sort out who should do what? And what's the most efficient way to sort out who should do what? And so there was this idea that one would you know, test the IQ, the intelligence quotient. And the quotient was, uh, you know, the average would be 100. And uh, some people who were more intelligent would get higher intelligence quotients, more than 100. Um, and, and, and other people who weren't as intelligent would get lower intelligence quotients. And so there was this idea, was there a notion of general intelligence? I think it was called G often, the, the general intelligence quotient that would be sort of a, an overall scaling of, of who's able to be more intelligent than who. I think what's become clear, I mean, as a practical matter, for me as somebody who watches people do, you know, achieve things and so on, I think the notion that, that there's sort of a, a, a general, a single number that characterizes this is complete nonsense. Um, and, uh, but I think there's a good way to think about it actually, which is, um, uh, okay. And it has to do with actually thinking about computers. And it's something we should understand from computers. So uh, one feature of computers is, in the end, it doesn't so much matter what computer hardware you have. What matters is how you can program that hardware. So you know, I'm running right now on a Mac computer. You know, but I might have a, a PC somewhere. 
or I might have you know a cell phone that has a different uh, a different CPU, a different it's a different computer, um, and it has different hardware. But nevertheless, when it comes to running programs, I can run the same programs on these different computers. It's just a question of how those programs are encoded for those different computers. And so, if you think about that for brains and for people, you know we all have different brains. You know our the, the, in fact, you know, one knows one's fingerprints are somewhat unique. The, the shape and structure of brains is much more variable than fingerprints. But, you know, the ways that there are folds and so on inside brains are very variable. Um, so we all have different brains um, and uh, in terms of our hardware. But nevertheless, the, the, the sort of the programming, the software that can exist on top of that hardware can achieve the same things, even though the hardware may be different, even though you know, one brain may have this feature that, you know, they may have a, you know, this particular piece of the brain may be larger than some other piece of the brain and so on. Turns out uh, it's likely to be the case that just like for computers, it just doesn't matter because, you know, with, with appropriate programming, you just do the same things. So then, you know, one of the questions is, uh, so, you know, people then start thinking about sort of a, you know, how can you parameterize different uh, sort of people's different performance on different kinds of things and sort of multiple intelligences of parameters of, you know, how good are you at telling uh, what other people think? How good are you at solving analytical problems? How good are you? I don't know whether they have this. How good are you at like creating new ideas? I don't know. Um, but anyway, so I think that there's some, uh, there's this whole question about, um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I just, I, I wanted to, you know, this all feeds into the whole question of like standardized testing. And, you know, you go through school and you do all these tests and, um, uh, you know, how does that all work? And, um, uh, you know, the, the main reason that, um, you know, there are, uh, it doesn't make any sense for you to be doing a class where you're not going to understand everything in the class. So there's some sense of sort of testing. Are you, do you know that stuff? And or do you know enough stuff that you'll be able to do well in this class? But then there's the kind of, you know, does the testing really mean something fundamental about, you know, you? And the answer is not really. Um, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to things like, I don't know, the SAT or something for colleges, it's like, what does that actually mean? You know, what is the, what is correlated with uh, the, um, you know, performance in something like uh, an SAT? And I think the only thing that can be said, and I think people have tried to measure, and people who create those tests have tried to measure is, you know, how well correlated is it with your success in the first year of college? Well, that's what they're trying to get. It's something which is well correlated with your success, whatever that means, in the first year of college. And I'm not sure, um, and, but, you know, it is, it is absolutely not something generalized beyond that. I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, I've had the good fortune to um, uh, both uh, no, and, and in many cases, you know, in some cases, mentor people who've ended up being, you know, very, very successful in the world or doing very interesting things, um, being able to, uh, and it's, it's really a strange thing that there's just a great diversity in the, in the actual skills that people have. And, you know, you can get to a really good point with a very diverse range of different kinds of skills. The, the, one of the things is always to figure out, well, what point are you trying to get to? You know, what is the thing that is a match with your kind of skills and interests and also happens to be a thing that one can do in the world today? I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, this is one of these challenges of, of do you want to do something that the world today uh, either is, uh, has a job to do 
or even better, actually values. Like, for example, I've been you know, involved uh, recently in trying to find the fundamental theory of physics. Does the world value that? Well, people seem to be pretty interested. You know, could I make a living doing that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether anybody would, you know, if it's, if it's like, um, uh, will you pay me to find a fundamental theory of physics? I'm not completely sure that the world is set up so that that's possible. I mean, fortunately, I make my living in some other way, and so I can have that as a hobby and have fun doing it. And it turns out people uh, seem to find it interesting and seem to value it, and that's great. But it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a slightly tricky thing. I want to talk about animal intelligence in a minute, but let's, um, uh, there's a point from Diana here. So how intelligent one is comes down to how well one can understand and use one's intelligence. You know, I have to say, okay, I'm going to give a little speechlet here um, about applying things one learns. I mean, one of the things that just drives me crazy is you'll talk to people and they'll say, you say, do you know about this? Say, well, yes, I did this course about this. Okay, so here's a question that's come up in real life that one's trying to answer that can make use of the things one learns in that course. Can the person actually you know, take the things they learned in that class and apply them to solve the problem? The answer is, so much of the time, the answer is no. And it just drives me crazy because somebody spent all that time doing this class and yet they didn't learn something, they didn't take away from it something they can then apply. And you know, I've noticed this with, with kids, for example, uh, you know, they'll do math classes and they'll learn all kinds of things. And then when it comes to, okay, let's apply what you learned about, you know, the volume of a sphere is four, four thirds pi r cubed. Let's apply that to work out, I don't know, the density of the earth, given that we know certain other information. And the concept that you could actually take the formula for the volume of a sphere, which has been learned as a matter of, you know, um, learning math and apply it to something like the earth. It's like, that doesn't connect. Or like, for example, if we were talking about, um, you know, let's say I told you that the, um, uh, the, the, the intensity of a signal from a cell phone tower falls off like one over R squared, one over the distance squared. You know, can you apply that to figure out, um, uh, you know, given certain uh, uh, level of noise, can you apply that to figure out how far away the cell phone can be? These are things which actually the math isn't difficult. And it's something that somebody kind of learnt in you know, a middle school to high school level math, but can they actually apply it in a real situation? There's often this, this terrible sort of fear of, you know, can I really apply the thing I learned? Or is there something that was just a thing I learned in school as opposed to something that I can actually apply in the real world? And I think it's a great exercise for people, you know, as you kind of experience things in the world, like, can I understand that? Can I use something I learned in school to understand that? Can I make this connection between things I learned in school and things that really happen in the world? And I think this ability to like take stuff you know um, and actually apply it to things you want to solve, that's a, that's a really important skill. And I don't think that skill, it's not an intelligence skill in any definition of intelligence. It's really more just a yes, it's possible, you can do that. It isn't the case that there's this box of stuff you learn in school, and then there's all the other stuff, and the box of stuff you learn in school is only used in school, so to speak. Um, and I think that's a, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm a big, big believer in the sort of taking things you've learned and just applying them in, in the things you run into in life. And I, you know, I, I suppose 
insofar as I've been able to do a certain amount of science and technology, um, a large part of my, okay, I, I probably have two, maybe three sort of tricks sort of up my sleeve, okay? One of them, which might be a built-in thing is I have a pretty good memory. And so like the stuff I learned, you know, in school 50 years ago, I still think I remember. Like I could probably conjugate Latin and Greek irregular verbs and I probably would still remember how they went, even though I haven't thought about that in probably close to 50 years. So, you know, I, and whether, whether I have a decent memory just because I was lucky in getting a decent memory, whether I have a decent memory because I've used my memory a lot. And so I, you know, remember how to remember better, I don't really know. But so that's one thing. Um, another thing is just this, you know, uh, apply knowledge from different places, learn a bunch of stuff and be able to apply knowledge from one place to other places. That's, that's something, you know, just having the sort of confidence that that will work is really a, an, an important thing. And I suppose the third, third thing is it's kind of like the choose what to do. I mean, there's one thing which is being able to do what you do. And the other thing is choosing what, what you decide to do. Like, you know, when you have that project to pick, what project do you pick? Do you project, do you pick a project? You know, how do you decide that this is a project you should do, that this is a project that's interesting, that you're gonna be able to do, that you have a path to be able to do? Um, how, do you, how do you pick that? And, you know, in my own case, uh, okay, so the, one of the, the sort of weird tricks of my life, I suppose, is, um, is the following thing. And this is not necessarily, not necessarily kid applicable, although it might be, which is there are these things that I'm interested in, like let's say physics. And there are these problems in these areas. And there are problems that are kind of like the core problem of that area, like the thing that is kind of the big, the big kahuna problem of that area, the thing that, that sort of people have been saying, that's the thing we really want to solve. And they might have been saying it for 50 years or 100 years or whatever. That's the, that's the core problem of this field. Okay, so my trick is just try and solve the core problem. Don't, most people who are working in one of those fields will say, oh my gosh, the core problem, it's much too difficult to ever possibly solve. So let's work on these things that are on the outer edges that are much easier. Um, and you know, we'll make a little bit of progress on the outer edge and maybe in a long, long time we'll be able to drill into the center. But kind of my strategy tends to be just head for the center of difficulty. Just try and do the thing that is the central problem. And so what happens when you try and do that? Well, uh, sometimes, so one thing that happens is you will be asking questions where the answers, if you can answer that question, even if it's not quite the central problem, but it's something that's sort of a, 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 uh, one of the bricks that builds up the central problem, you, by, by being able to answer anything right around there, you are achieving much more than by answering something out on the periphery. Also, another thing is there aren't as many people looking at the central problem because people gave up usually. People said, it's too difficult. We're not going to look at this. Sometimes, and the big surprise of this physics project recently is it turns out that the central problem may not be as difficult as you thought it was and as everybody else thought it was. And then that's tremendously satisfying because you find out, as, as happened with this physics project, it's like, I thought these problems, which I've known about for 50 years, would be much harder. And they just are not. And uh, 
you know, that's, that's really wonderful when that happens, although you can't count on that happening. But what, what you can count on is that if you make any progress on that central problem, it'll be important relative to progress that's being made on these more peripheral things. And so, you know, I think to me, when I, when I think about different fields or different questions, it's always like, what's the main question? What's the core question? You know, if you're, if you're doing a science project, you know, science fair project, whatever else, you know, uh, it's like, what is the core question in this area you're trying to deal with? You know, you're trying to work out, I don't know what, um, oh, I don't know, how long does some kind of, um, uh, I'm picking one where it's pretty obvious what to do, but you know, how long does some kind of um, uh, germ last on some surface or something? That, that's a bad example because it's pretty obvious what to do. But um, some other case where, where it's less obvious and where there's kind of the, um, um, where there's sort of a choice between the core problem and a peripheral problem. It's like, try and solve the core problem. And maybe you won't be able to do exactly the core problem. It'll be a little bit to the side of the core problem. But by just thinking about the core problem, you're already way ahead. And um, you know, I think that the thing to remember is, you know, when you look at people who have been very successful in, in uh, well, particularly in more intellectual fields, I think it's particularly true, but it's true in a lot of fields. The, the question of uh, knowing kind of sort of what to try to do, understanding what the goal is, is often vastly more important than the mechanical ability to solve it. I mean, like for example, in this, in this project to find fundamental theory of physics, um, you know, some of what's come up there, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not total, totally terrible at math kinds of things and so on, but I will tell you that the, that the math that's come up in, um, uh, in trying to figure out the fundamental theory of physics is above my level of math capability. Now, some of it is above the level of math capability of anybody right now, but there, are, there is some of the math that is definitely, uh, you know, above what I can easily do in math. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I'm deciding, I'm sort of bashing through trying to get to the answer, and I can do that math well enough to be able to get through the answer. It won't be as elegant as somebody uh, who is, is more skilled at doing that kind of math might be able to do, but by, because I know what, where I'm trying to get to, I'm, you know, I, and I sort of know enough to be able to bash through it, even though I didn't do it in the most beautiful possible way. Um, and I think that's a, you know, it's, it's important to realize the, the goal is often more important and more difficult to, you know, more people, the, the set of people who um, uh, sort of picking the right goals is, is a much, is, a, is an ability in much shorter supply than mechanically being able to solve things to get to those goals. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think it needs to be in shorter supply. It's just a question of, of, of learning to make decisions about picking out goals and figuring out, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, um, like in, in my particular line of work of, of designing uh, computational languages and things like this, a lot of what's involved and, and running companies and so on, a lot of what's involved is just making decisions about things. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's a, uh, sometimes in school, it's not really a making decision about things kind of, uh, kind of thing that you learn. And that's a, it's a, it's a really, um, you know, being able to just sort of make decisions, not freak out about the fact, oh my gosh, I don't know how to make this decision. Just, you know, you make the decision, maybe you'll be wrong some fraction of the time. Hopefully it won't be disastrous. You keep on doing the next thing. Anyway, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, m m more to say about that. I'm happy to talk more about that. Okay, let's see. Um, the, uh, 
yeah, so there's a comment here from Slayer, the Arth, um, saying that one of the underlying issues is that kids are taught to pass exams rather than necessarily to, to learn things. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough the, the value of like learning stuff you're interested in that you're going to remember, you know, passing the exams. Well, there are structural things in the education system where it's like you can get to the next rung of some ladder um, better by passing this exam and so on. I, you know, it's a really unfortunate that some aspects of the education system are set up that way. And it's a, you know, sometimes I think with people who are like trying really, really hard to go to the right college or the right whatever, it's like, you know, be careful what you wish for, because it may be that the selection process is actually selecting for the kinds of people for whom that will make sense. And you're not one of them. Like if you're a really creative thinker, who's really good at figuring stuff out, or you're really a great entrepreneur who's good at sort of, uh, you know, doing business and so on, then going to, um, uh, you know, then, then going to the most uh, sort of elite school or whatever that has the most intellectual stuff going on it may not be relevant um, and, or has the most kind of uh, sort of perform, perform, perform kind of attitude. If you're into that kind of thing, different story. But there's a, sometimes people are like, I really, really, really want to go to this place that's all about performance, but actually the thing that person is best at and values most isn't that kind of performance. And so, you know, it's, it's just the wrong, wrong match. I mean, I think, you know, the thing to say, okay, this is again, an off topic thing, but I'll say it anyway, because it's, um, uh, you know, the thing people don't understand, like about colleges, for example, people say, oh, there's this, you know, US News and World Report ranking of the top 100 colleges, whatever it is. Or it's, um, this is like, assuming that that colleges are completely plug compatible. That is that, you know, that every college is like every other college. It's just not true. You know, they have different personalities and different kinds of students who go there, different, uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, styles of, 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 of operation and so on. And I think people, you know, it's sort of the, this concept of let me go to the better one because it's higher up on that ranking um, is, is kind of not, you know, it's the better one for you, so to speak, which may not be the better one according to the slightly dubious statistical analysis that's done to make these kind of, uh, you know, one shot rankings. I mean, it's kind of like, it's almost like the intelligence story. It's like, you know, reducing the college to one number is kind of unfortunate for the college because it's kind of like, um, you know, there's this whole college with hundreds of years of history and all these different professors and all these different facilities and so on. And now you're going to reduce it to this one number of what its ranking is. And that's kind of not, not the right way to think about it, I think. Um, let's see. Um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, another thing that happens, okay, I'm, I'm getting on too many uh, soapboxes here, but another thing that happens is, you know, when you're uh, in many lines of work, not all, in many lines of work in careers, what matters is to do things absolutely as well as possible. It's not that there are lines of work where it's more important to just, in, the, in a fixed amount of time, get as far as you can. But there are plenty of lines of work where the real goal is, you know, do it as well as you can. Doesn't matter whether it's some, you know, and, and sort of partial credit isn't really a thing. It's like if you're writing a piece of software and it's like, well, I get partial credit. The thing's full of bugs and it crashes for everybody, you know, 25% of the time, but I should get 75% partial credit. That isn't really, doesn't make any sense. And I think one of the things that can happen in, you know, in school is that people will end up 
doing things where they're running very fast, they're doing all these classes, and they're getting sort of partial credit on everything. And that's a bad model for, for a lot of kinds of professions and so on, where that's not what it's about. It's about, you know, can I really do a good job? Can I do that project and really make it great? Um, rather than, you know, can I do it fast enough that, you know, I get sort of almost there and I kind of get partial credit for it. And I, you know, I think the thing that, um, well, uh, you know, different people learn in different ways, but, but I always find um, uh, a lot of, for example, we have a summer camp for high school students, which we'll be doing online this year. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very project-based camp where the kind of the idea is um, uh, do an original project. Um, and uh, I think that sort of the process of, well, first of all, the process of do something that nobody's ever done before, and the process of do it as well as you can. Admittedly, we have time constraints there, which is unfortunate. Um, but, uh, you know, these are, these are really worthwhile things to, to and, and uh, I wouldn't say specifically about our camp, but I mean, in general, just do projects you like. I mean, like I, kind of a funny thing for me, I, I did a lot of physics projects when I was a, uh, early teenager. And, uh, you know, you can find the results of my projects on the web now. It's kind of, um, I'm kind of, uh, I was actually quite proud of myself. I was reading stuff I wrote when I was like 12, 13 years old recently in the context of this fundamental physics project. It's quite decent, actually. Um, it's, it's um, but, you know, I, I did that just because I was interested in it. I didn't do that in any way for school. I didn't do that. I, I don't think anybody in any school I was at ever even saw it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something, in fact, I don't think it was seen by anybody until I put it on the web a few years ago. Um, but it's something that I found really interesting and uh, was probably kind of educational for me. Um, and it was something that, you know, I took sort of pride in doing as well as I could. Okay. Um, question is from AS. My kids are currently reading your book, A New Kind of Science. Is your new physics book within reach of kids? Um, High school, yes. Below that, probably no. Um, I would say pieces of, there are parts of the book that talk about kind of how these simple models work, the intrinsic character of these models that should be accessible. The parts um, that are sort of, um, some parts are more kind of dealing with the, um, the existing sort of uh, uh, corpus of knowledge in physics and those, I'm afraid, are, are, are probably a bit advanced. Um, I would suggest, if you look at the announcement blog post that I wrote, that's kind of a, a, a good introduction to the project that I, I think should be accessible, um, and uh, uh, you know, accessible maybe with a little bit of, of um, looking on the web to, to learn what some terms mean and so on. Okay, there's a question from Ed here asking about, um, can I explain how particles acquire mass? I can talk about what mass is, but I don't think for here because it's a little bit complicated. Um, I think one of the things that's really exciting about this physics project is we actually sort of know, I think, structurally and abstractly what mass is. Um, uh, actually, we were just asking, is it related to spin? Um, the answer is we were just talking about that, even on a live stream yesterday, about kind of what the origin of particle spin is. So if you're interested in that, uh, I, I, you, might, you might want to check out the recording of that. Yeah, this, this question that caused me to go into this long speech about intelligence and, and measurement of intelligence and so on had to do with um, uh, animals. 
and animal intelligence and so on. You know, one of the things people find fun that's sort of a science fiction thing is, you know, will we be able to communicate with extraterrestrials? I think that question is ultimately a, a badly formed question, but let's even imagine that's a question. The first sort of test case for that is, how about all the animals on the earth? Can we communicate with them? You know, if we've got, you know, if you've got a cat or a dog or something, you probably have some at least emotional level communication with, with, with the animal. Um, and uh, there used to be, for a while, there was a, a, a product that was a dog-human translator that would, um, would sort of listen to, the, um, uh, listen to the barks of different kinds of dogs, and it would kind of say, translate that into one of, you know, I don't know, five or 10 phrases. But really, those related to more or less emotional states for the dog. And that's, um, so that's sort of one level of, of communication. But, but so one question would be, um, what, um, how would one, you know, if one was trying to sort of figure out the intelligence of animals, you know, well, how about we have a discussion with the animal? We, we ask it things, you know, we see, is it, is it capable? And when we talk about uh, intelligence of, of computers and artificial intelligence, a pretty common thing is this thing called the Turing test, which is a question of if, if you had, uh, if you were typing in a, uh, you know, text messages to something, okay, you type your text messages, and, uh, you know, uh, the question is, do you know if it's a human at the other end of the text message stream or a bot? In other words, by asking it questions, you can say, you know, you say things like, uh, what's your favorite color or something? It'll say some answer. You say, what's two plus two? It'll say some answer. Um, the question is, can you tell by just sort of that channel of, of text messaging, can you tell whether the thing at the other end is a human or a computer? And um, uh, it's, it's pretty hard that there aren't really, um, well, it's, there's been very slow progress in making it hard to tell. Uh, I mean, people, um, actually, sometimes people use our Wolfram Alpha uh, knowledge engine as something to kind of give general knowledge to AIs that um, uh, can be used for Turing tests, where you're trying to figure out is it a human or a computer at the other end. And I, I've tried a few of these things. It's kind of funny because you ask it a bunch of questions, and you know Wolfram Alpha can answer those questions, but you know that no human would be able to answer that set of rather obscure questions. So there, you nailed it. It's a computer. Um, but uh, you know this question about can we make an AI that we can have a conversation with and not be able to tell it isn't a human? It's an interesting thing. We talk about that separately. But now, you know, we're asking the question, you know, how do we communicate? So we're trying to communicate with some animal, some, uh, I don't know, a dolphin, a, um, uh, something like that. What, you know, what's our medium of communication? What, um, uh, and, um, you know, for example, for, uh, for primates, other than us, there's, um, you know, chimpanzees and things. People have used sign language. They've used, you know, things on an iPad where you're pointing at, um, at different pictures of things and so on to try and sort of form a channel of communication. And there's sort of interesting questions about how far can that get? How sophisticated can the language get? Um, and uh, how sophisticated can the concepts get? One of the challenges is, uh, you know, as a famous philosopher, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was like, if you could talk to lions what would you talk to them about? In other words, 
the life of a lion is different from the life of a person. They have different kinds of experiences, the different kinds of things they care about. What would be the common themes that you could actually talk about? What would be the um, uh, what would be kind of the, um, uh, the 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 medium of discussion? You know, would the language would would the lion be able to form linguistic structures like we do? You know, all human languages have nouns and verbs and adjectives, all of them. Now we don't know whether that's because that's how our brains are built, or whether that's because they all sort of evolved in some some correlated way. It's not completely clear. We don't know whether that's because of something to do with the way that we think about the structure of knowledge in the world. Um, I, I could talk about this at considerable length because I've thought about it a lot. Um, but but you know the question of for your average animal, would its language have the same structure or not? Um, I'm kind of led to. Um, uh, and, and this question of sort of what's the internal state of the animal? Does it have a sort of a, a model of the world that's like ours? Does it figure things out the way we figure things out about the world? Hard to know. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to know whether another person figures things out the same way you figure things out. But the best you've got in, figure, in, in learning that is talking to them and being able to ask them questions and sort of being able to sort of probe the shape of their kind of, um, uh, of their way of thinking about things. You know, I have to tell you, excuse me, um, many years ago, I was involved in a very silly project. So actually, many, many years ago, I was, uh, for some reason, was trying to uh, come up with silly inventions that you might file patents for and things like this. And I had two silly inventions at that time. One of them was an alarm clock that would decide when to wake you up based on looking at your brain waves, And the other was video games for pets. So amusingly, the, the, uh, the brainwave alarm clock thing, it hasn't been, it's not with brainwaves, but there are now alarm clocks that uh, you know, sense your motion and things when you're asleep to decide what, what cycle of sleep you're in and whether that's a good one to wake you up in. So, so that pseudo invention eventually happened. But the other one, um, video games for pets, maybe five or six years ago, we were working with some company that was interested in kind of um, uh, innovation and so on, and I, I was actually a little frustrated. And I, I eventually said, "Look, you know, let me feed you an innovation: video games for pets." So there was a branding company, so they were very, very interested in that. And so we started seriously looking at um, um, how would you make really good video games for pets. And actually, I had a, I guess it was was longer ago than that because it was right around the time the iPad came out. It was probably 2010 or so, um, and. Uh, the, um, so one of my challenges was, could you invent a game for the iPad that a cat could win against its owner? So, you know, cats are quick, you know, cats are, you know, have various characteristics. Humans have various characteristics too. Can you make a game on an iPad that a cat can win against its owner? So we got uh, an animal behavior expert involved in this and, um, uh, started looking at it. He said, problem is cats aren't going to be interested. I said, what about dogs? Problem is dogs aren't going to be interested. They're, they're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're more, um, uh, and, uh, no, the problem is dogs don't have good enough eyesight and things and they, you know, they're more uh, smell related and so on. And um, uh, so it's not going to work for dogs. But he was really pushing the idea of cockatoos, which are social birds and uh, which are often kept one at a time. And so 
what this really turned into was essentially a Twitter for cockatoos project um, of, a, of a, you know, make the social network for the cockatoos. And, and you know, there were all these questions like, well, we discovered that the, the claws of a cat couldn't scratch the screen of an iPad. And I think the beak of a cockatoo could activate the screen and so on. Unfortunately, this project never happened. Somebody should really do this project. Um, but one of the things that I was particularly interested in with that project is if you give, let's say, cockatoos a means of constructing things, you know, a, a Minecraft for cockatoos or something, what would they construct? And would they construct something that, you know, might look completely random to us, but it might be deeply meaningful to themselves or another cockatoo for that matter? And, you know, what would, what would the animal build if you gave the animal a means to build things? And uh, unfortunately, we never did that project. I, I'm hoping somebody will eventually do that, and we'll be able to see what is the what is the great literature of uh, you know of the lions or the cockatoos or whatever else, because we don't know. Now we may be in a situation where we look at it and it's like this was just a bunch of random bits. You know, this was is this really a Minecraft? You know, what did they make? It's just something totally random. We as humans just don't understand the significance of it at all. We might be in that situation. Um, I think another thing that I've also been waiting for is, um, you know, when do we get to talk to the animals? You know, when I was a kid, there were these Dr. Doolittle books about this uh, veterinarian who talked to animals that were kind of cool. And it's a question is, okay, why can't we talk to animals? Well, one question is, do we actually have a common set of things to talk to them about? But imagine we could make sort of the universal translator where we say, um, uh, you know, um, Tell me what kind of what your favorite kind of cat food is, or more. Uh, tell me why you like uh, a red ball of wool more than you like a black ball of wool. Okay, and let's say we could communicate that, and it would turn into a you know meow, purr, whatever thing for a cat, or, or whatever it is. Um, and and then the cat would respond with a you know whatever the cat responds with, or maybe the cat would respond with some gesture with its paw or something. Um, or maybe the cat would respond on an iPad by, you know, moving things around. The question is, can we, you know, what can we detect about, you know, could we, could we learn that language? You know, it's like, like we've tried to learn, you know, people will go into, you know, the, the middle of the Amazon jungle, where there are maybe still some tribes that haven't had contact with the outside world. Um, and, you know, it's like, can you learn the language of this tribe? Well, you know, it's kind of like, well, you learn it because they point at, you know, there are these things actually as a, as a, um, when you, when you do linguistics, there are maybe 7,000 languages that are still extant around the world, maybe, maybe 10,000. Um, and there's, there's often, there's things called Swadesh lists, which are kind of lists of very basic words like person, fish, you know, these tree, this kind of thing that are um, a limited set of words that one knows in lots of languages. And where imagine you were sort of plopped down, um, and you're tr sort of trying to find a way to communicate, you can point at the thing and it's like, you say tree, that's a tree. Okay, so you know, how, do you, how do you make the same kind of, um, uh, you, know, you, you, you can do this with, with humans, people have done this many times, of sort of learning being plopped down in some place and learning the local language, so to speak. You know, could we learn the local language of the animals? Um, you know, I, I have to say, I've sort of thought that with modern machine learning and so on, it might be possible. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you basically sort of record the environment of the animal, you record how it responds to different kinds of things, and you, you kind of then detect what is its, 
uh, sort of vocalization of, of things based on what it's seen. I mean, I think one of the cases of this is, is, is whale songs. You know, whales have these long, elaborate sort of sounds that, that they make that get transmitted through the deep ocean. And in the deep ocean, sort of it's a paradoxical thing, but sound travels a long way in the deep ocean. So you can have one whale is kind of having a conversation with a whale a thousand miles away. Or is it having a conversation? We don't know for sure. We don't know whether you know, the kind of whale songs that are made are actually transmitting information, you know, being, you know, maybe they're telling the, the epic of the, um, uh, I was going to say the, the uh, I wouldn't be a good thing to say, the epic of Moby Dick or something. You know, maybe they're saying some, you know, maybe they're reciting a whale epic to some other whale that's then going to re-recite that whale epic to other whales. And that that's been going on, you know, across, you know, halfway across the Pacific Ocean for a long time. We don't know. That might well have been happening. Uh, just like songbirds are continually making songs which other birds respond to. You know, are those songs meaningful in conveying information in the way that we think about information? Or are they just uh, purely, you know, like, like um, I will admit that I sometimes whistle when I work and I'm quite sure that my whistling conveys no useful information and is quite horribly tuneless too. Um, and uh, you know, maybe that's what the birds are doing. They're just hanging out, whistling as they, as they hang out, so to speak. Or maybe that's sort of actually meaningful information. How do you tell? You know, how do you tell like, um, you know, and, and maybe the way you tell is you try and correlate something that happened to one bird or some environment that one bird is in, you try and say, is that environment affecting the, the, the bird's song? Is it affecting the whale's song? Can we determine that effect? Can we maybe use machine learning to learn the effect of something and how that is vocalized by that, by that critter? And if we could do that, maybe we could learn something where, where we could be able to either decode what the creature saw or is talking about, or even be able to tell it like another one of its species would tell it something. So it's kind of a, you know, could we imagine making sort of the universal translator for, for creatures? Um, I think it's an interesting question and I don't think it's hopeless. And it's again, it's actually in the, in the spectrum of things people have tried to do or not tried to do, I don't think anybody's tried to do that for a very, very long time, if ever, and probably not with modern techniques and so on. And it might not be that hard. Or it might be, might be, the other possibility is you might find out that it's essentially impossible. Because those critters' kind of worldviews and models of the world are just so completely different from ours that meaningful, sort of uh, uh, serious communication isn't actually possible. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.